Amen. The word, of the, the word for being preached this morning is from John chapter 14. I'll be reading the first 11 verses. These are the words of God. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would, uh, I, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves." Thus the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing now. Heavenly Father, your word is a blessing to us. Bless us now in the preaching and receiving of it. Direct our ways to keep it and make our hearts upright through it and in the power of your spirit. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> what troubles your heart? What troubles your heart today? This morning, what troubles are you carrying with you? Troubles of uncertainty. Troubles that you have in the present right now. Troubles that you have as you concern yourself about the future. Financial troubles. Health troubles. Troubles on the inside of you and your soul. Troubles on the outside because of what others are doing or not doing to or for you. Are you troubled over the state of the nation state of your family, the state of your job or its security? Are you troubled over other loved ones in your midst, where they are, how they are walking or not walking with the Lord? What troubles your heart today? What troubles your heart today? John 13 through 17 probably is the, one of the most favorite passages in all of the Gospels for Christians, and it should be. As we travel through these chapters 13 through 17, I would encourage you in the weeks ahead to sit down from time to time and read those five chapters altogether. For they are one discourse. It's, it's one sermon in essence with a long prayer from Christ. It begins with the washing of the feet of the disciples and it ends with Christ's intercessory prayer for his, for his followers. And all of it takes place on the night of his betrayal. These entire five chapters are taking place in just one evening. Jesus himself was troubled. We saw that in chapter 13, verse 21. Jesus said um, he was he, being troubled in spirit. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of, the, uh, one of you will betray me. So he was troubled over the coming betrayal and all that would follow that evening and the next day. The other Gospels record something that John does not record with regard to that. The other Gospels record um, that on that evening also they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. 
And, and in that, we see Jesus seeking the Father for comfort and resting in the midst of his troubled soul, resting in God's perfect will despite his troubled spirit. Um, it's in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and Luke 22. I'm going to turn to, uh, to Matthew's passage, Matthew 26, if you want to read along. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, so John is with them. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Mark records almost exactly the same passage. Luke is a little bit different. He also mentions these words in the midst of Christ praying, apparently even just the first or second time. He writes, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, to Jesus, strengthening him, and being in agony. So, uh, so the, uh, the angel comes and is strengthening him, and yet Jesus continues to pray in agony. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. It's as though the angel did not come and immediately bring comfort, but the angel came to strengthen him to continue to go before the Father in his agony. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The theme of the entire discourse, really, of 13 through 17, the theme of this discourse is comfort for troubled hearts of his disciples. And that's why I encourage you to think about reading it all the way through. Comfort and really courage for troubled hearts um, in the midst of life, in the midst of the life that Jesus is going to live for his people to live in the midst of. And if we listen to Jesus then, throughout these verses as well as the entire discourse, our hearts are to be comforted as well. J.C. Ryle writes these words. He says, heart trouble is the commonest thing in the world. No rank or class or condition is exempt from it. No bars or bolts or locks can keep it out. Partly from inward causes, partly from outward causes, partly from the body, partly from the mind, partly from what we love and partly from what we fear, the journey of life is full of trouble. Even the best of Christians have many bitter cups to drink between grace and glory. Even the holiest saints find the world a valley of tears. And so to our text. Jesus speaking, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. These disciples had followed Jesus for three years, faithfully. They, they probably had burned many bridges, walked away possibly from vocations and careers. We don't hear of the times that they might have been able to spend with family. They probably lost many friends and family to their ruined reputations as they continued to follow this one who now had a price on his head. And now their leader, rabbi, and messiah was telling them that he was going to depart. He was going to leave. He told them that one of them was going to betray him, and they didn't know which one it was. And he said to Peter that he would deny him thrice, and that where he was going, they couldn't follow. They wouldn't be able to follow him. So they're troubled. And Jesus first gives this simple remedy for our troubled souls right here in verse 1. Here is the simple remedy for our troubled souls. You believe in God, believe also in me. Faith. Faith is the remedy for troubled souls. Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. That psalm, the psalmist is preaching to himself. He's lost hope. He's, he is wondering whether or not he can trust God. The situation before him is dire, and he preaches to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. He preaches to himself, as we must preach to ourselves. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Isaiah 26, the Lord promises, You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Why does this faith and hope seem to vanish away with the circumstances we are in? God would tell us that in the midst of all of the things that bring us trouble, to preach to our souls, hope in God. Jesus would say, I tell you, let your hearts not be troubled. And then he would promise through Isaiah, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. <laughs> Faith is the remedy. And so Jesus comforts them regarding his departure and what it will accomplish. Jesus does not comfort them by telling them that, oh, it's all, I'm going to fix everything. It's all going to be now just peaceful and easy for you. Don't worry. He says, don't worry, because I am going away, and I'm going away to a place that has many places for all of you, and I'm going to prepare it for you. There's, there's lots of discussion about what does it mean that Jesus is preparing a place as he's some kind of general contractor and there's all kinds of extra building going on. I, I don't think that's what's going on. In fact, the word mansions is just a dwelling place. It's the same word you find in verse uh, 23, for instance. It says, um, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home, that's the same word, make our mone, our home with him. The word, we end up with mansions in that verse because of Tyndale's translation, the, one of the first translations into English. The, the word is, uh, and even that word that was mansions in, in his day did not mean only or necessarily some large, huge um, 
a place out on a plantation or something like that, but rather um, really an apartment, a dwelling, a place that one could dwell in. You could have many mansions in a large home. They would be um, many uh, dwelling places. And so the size is not um, really being emphasized in the Greek at all. But he's saying, I have, there's many dwelling places and I go to prepare a place. Now, again, the preparation that Christ has to make for us to go, I referred to in my call to worship. The preparation is his blood. The preparation is his blood sacrifice offered, showing forth that sacrifice to God the Father, that those that he brings with him are covered in the righteousness of Christ, that, that we are his. Um, and so I, I think that's what he's uh, alluding to here in these verses. So he says, there are many, there are many mansions, in, and I have told you, I go to prepare, prepare a place for you. And if I go preparing that place, I will come for you as well. I will return for you as well. So they're, they're to be comforted because there are many dwellings in his father's house, and he's going to prepare a place for each disciple. And again, I'm not sure... Um, uh, well, I'll hold off in a minute. I'll tell you. I'm not sure exactly what the, the point of the mansions in our dwelling place is, but, but I, and it's hard to tell. I want to come back to that in just a moment. But finally, he promises that he will return for his disciples. But the first thing I wanted you to think about is, he says, in my father's house, my father's house, you will get to dwell in your father's house. There are lots of houses in the world. There are lots of houses in your world. But really, you know, there's only one home, isn't there? There's something that changes a house and makes it your home. And particularly, there's only one place that you would have called your father's home. Except for sinful or other providences, and we all have imperfect fathers, and we all have imperfect father's homes stories, but even when, there, even when that is something that is a, maybe a bad memory or, hard, or harmful or hard memory, it's, part of the reason it's hard is because you know in your soul, you, we already know in our soul what it means to have a perfect home with our Father. That's what we're built for. That's what we long for. And your earthly Father is simply a representation, of, a picture of your heavenly Father who is perfect and who has a home and your heart longs for that home. And that's what Jesus is saying. In my Father's house, there's many homes for you in my Father's home. Home is a place where we are loved for our own sakes and because we are family and not because we have earned such love. It comes to us with just wonderful, um, wonderful acceptance. You didn't earn, you know, you think when a baby is born, they're brought into the home, um, that baby has done nothing to earn its place in its home. It's just gift. And for the rest of your life, again, except for providential circumstances, that's your home, and that's your father, and that's your father's home. It's interesting because we have a homeless problem today in our, in our nation, a great homeless problem, but we're pointing to the wrong problem. We're, we're not pointing to the real problem that is, that is besetting our people, our culture, this homelessness is not really going to be solved by building low-income housing, not really. That's not going to solve the homelessness problem. The homelessness will really only be solved by bringing any of us, all of us, any of them, home. Home to their father's house. Home to a place of forgiveness. Home to a place of mercy and grace. 
home to a place of acceptance and a part of a greater family. So home to their father's house. We want to be in such a home. And there is an eternal home prepared for every follower, follower of Christ. And in that home, all troubles will cease. All troubles will cease. So I asked you, do you have troubles? Are there troubles in your heart? You know, remember being a little child, or maybe you are a little child, and there's trouble, and it's outside out there. And when there's trouble, what do you want to do? You want to run home. And you know if you run home, the trouble will cease. What were your troubles that you listed? What Jesus is saying is, he's saying, do not let your heart be troubled because there is a place for you. I'm preparing it for you. It's an eternal dwelling place. That means like forever and ever. And it's home. And in that home, all of your troubles will go away. All of them will be done with. That's the comfort he wants to give. That place is heaven where God the Father dwells and where every believer goes when they die. Jesus prepares the place. And, but something else is happening too. We are also prepared for a glorious body, for our unclothed souls, which we receive at the resurrection. So there's, there's two aspects of where we go when we die. There's the sense that we go, our, our souls, our spirits immediately are in the presence in heaven with Jesus, where we are granted mansions, dwelling places for those spirits to dwell in. Until the resurrection. And at the time of the resurrection, then our bodies are raised in glory in this final consummation when Jesus Christ comes and, and raises us from the dead for the, to the final judgment and the gifts of rewards. And heaven and earth are somehow conjoined together where we are now in, in, full, um, in, in this full consummation, dwelling with our Father in a home that he has made in a fully and completed heaven and earth. Paul deals with this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and so compare and maybe contrast a little bit what's, what is being said here, see if we can make sense of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for we know that if our earthly house, dwelling place, we know if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Notice he's not talking about a building, he's talking about your flesh there, your body as a dwelling place, and that dwelling place is going to die. It's going to be destroyed. Verse 2, for in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. We're clothed here with mortality, but we're going to be clothed with immortality. We are going to be clothed with life, he says, something in, in some sense that we are not clothed with. We are not clothed with eternal life. We are promised eternal life. We're walking in eternal life, but there's something still coming. Verse 5, now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And Jesus is going to talk about the Spirit and the guarantee of that Spirit and the, and the, the, um, the advocate, the friend, the comforter, that Spirit, who he is sending to his disciples all through chapters 14 and 15. Paul again, verse 6. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, 
We are absent from the Lord. We're not home. Verse, four, verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. It's okay to long for home. It's okay to long for home. And there's a way to do this that only we can do it, and, and Jesus is going to touch on that in just these verses here. So how these two are tied together are dwellings in heaven, a place for our souls that do not wish to be unclothed, but rather more fully clothed, and our resurrected bodies later is not made completely clear. One possibility is that these mansions, rather than thinking of them as um, brick and mortar, as, uh, and, and by the way, we, we probably need to talk some point about heaven. It's not just, it's not just, you know, floating clouds and, well, not even clouds, just all, uh, nothing material at all. There's, there's nothing that should give us the idea that heaven is a non-material place. Right? And I know that because I know at least it's not at one place because Jesus, fully bodily raised, is in heaven. Okay, And, and if you're fully raised in heaven, not, not to be blasphemous anyway, but it's hard if you are physical to sit on an invisible, non-material chair. Okay, so, but that, those are things to consider. But, and, and maybe that's important to consider because also this, there, there is something about this dwelling place that is for your soul. Is it possible that we are made, we're made body and spirit, and, and we're ma- we, don't, we don't want to be separated. We don't want those two things separated. The Gnostics did. Those who believed that the material world was evil and corrupt believed that in order to become perfected, what you needed to do is be removed from the material world, and all you were was you know, just this kind of puffy thing called a spirit. But what if instead that spirit is going to be removed from the flesh that is still corrupt, that is still mortal, and mortality has been left, and then you are, you are given, in essence, a temporary dwelling place for your soul, for your body. I'm sorry, for your soul to live in a, a temporary body. In fact, the word mone can also be translated an inn or a place, of, a place on a journey that you, are, that you stay in for a time. It's like a and b Okay, so, so regardless, the, the point isn't whether or not any of that is absolutely correct. So the point is that you, your troubled soul is going to rest in heaven, and it's going to rest in heaven in a place that feels complete, even though it's before the resurrection, even though it's before the, the final resurrection. You'll be home because you'll be in your father's home. So what is clear is that we will be going there, and when we go there, it will be beyond good, beyond good. And so what does Jesus say to do? He says, believe. You believe in God, believe also in me. And if you're not going to believe in me, believe in the works. At least believe in the works that I've showed you. Let those signs that I've shown you, not, not just that I can do miracles. Remember, as we've gone through those seven signs, those, those seven signs that point to who I am, who I am and what I am doing. I am bringing newness. I am bringing the new covenant. I am bringing the new humanity. I'm bringing the new wine. I'm bringing the new temple. I'm bringing the new life. I'm Jesus. I am that Messiah. And I've come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. Believe in Jesus, for then you will be going home and all that it means to go 
to that perfect home. I think it's also interesting to notice in this passage all of the language that really helps to form our creeds. The articles of our faith are to be comforts of our heart. And I I want to instruct you in this. I want you to think about this because it it is something to think about when you memorize and recite the creeds. They're, They're not just data points. Jesus says to have faith, and the question often is, faith in what? What do you believe? Christian, what do you believe? What is the object of your faith? And when we recite the creed, we are pointing ourselves, our souls, our hearts, our troubled hearts, we are pointing them to the place and person of comfort, the one who takes the troubles away. So in these verses, we have the mention of God the Father and God the Son. Just a few verses later, we'll have God the Spirit. We have um, mention of Christ's ascension, his coming again, and his works that bring us to heaven, that which, is, that which is accomplish, accomplishes our entrance into, the, into heaven. Have you ever thought of using the Apostles' Creed as a source of comfort? Because Jesus has said here, let not your heart be troubled. Not, you believe in God, believe also in, in me. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Is it possible you could turn to the Creed and, and let that direct you, not just to make sure you have your doctrine right, Ugh, religion, ugh. But rather to direct your heart to who and what and why you believe and let it, let those words comfort your heart. This is why um, I, I, we decided years ago that, that we would recite not just the, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, we later added the definition of Chalcedon that we do um, during, during the season of Advent, but then we come out of it And I love reciting the answer to the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? This this is comfort. What is your only comfort? Your hearts are troubled? Well, what's your only comfort in life? What's your only comfort in death? That I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready for now on to live for him. This is the comfort for troubled souls. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says what may be one of the most famous verses. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now that part of the verse is well known. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then Jesus says one of the most offensive, exclusive statements he could make. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. The gospel's offense cannot be avoided because the true offense is none other than Jesus himself. It is exclusive 
and therefore it is offensive to the heart that rebels against God. The gospel is a scandal because it declares the hopelessness of man's plight due to sin. When Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me, just think of how much truth is packed into that word, except. There's no other way to get to the Father's home. You will be turned away. It will be said to you, depart from me, I never knew you. By the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Unless he knows you. Unless you know him. Why? Because of our sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Well, the glory of God is heaven. You ain't going to get there. You will not be able to propel yourself there yourself or with any other religion or any other way or any other philosophy of life. You will not. You will fall short. So Paul says. So God says. Romans 5.12. It's not just that you are going to sin. It's that you're a sinner by nature. 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men, men because all sinned. See, it's not that we sin and then become sinners. We're condemned sinners, and we just act out of our bent nature. We sin because we are sinners. Romans 6.23 says, and the wages, what you earn for that sin is death. Spiritual and eternal separation, condemnation, wrath of God outside of the work of Jesus Christ. You go back to Romans 5, again, it says, he began that with, um, therefore, just as through one man, he says, so by another man, another covenant head, there is a way. In fact, his way, his grace overpowers any sin nature, any sin. But the point is, this is super offensive, but it's offensive to unbelieving hearts. You might, you might notice how so often when we talk about it, we Christians, we who are born again, we can talk about this. And if we're not thinking about those outside, because it raises questions about those outside and that aren't in the faith. But if we think for ourselves, it is great comfort to think about the fact that I am a disgusting sinner by nature. And my only comfort in life and death is not me cleaning up myself. That, that mess is too big. It's too deep. It's too wide. But my only hope in life and in death, my only comfort is Jesus Christ, who's gone before me to prepare the place so I can come to my Father's home, so I can come into my Father's glorious home. That's, that is wonderfully comforting. So how could we see this exclusivity as actually a, a, a comfort, a point of comfort instead The truth is offensive, and Jesus is the truth. He says so. We're dead in our sins by nature, fulfilling the lusts of the flesh and the mind. Ephesians 2 says this, and and that's offensive to unbelieving hearts. It's offensive to unbelieving hearts to say, there's nothing in you that could could ever please God, that could ever find God accepting you, bringing you in. There must be another one because you are stained in your sin, just like all of us, until Christ changes us from within. But, and for us, in God's rich mercy, those of us who are dead, spiritually dead, are made alive in Christ Jesus because Jesus is the life. 
I'm the truth, I'm the life, and he is, he is the way, the only exclusive way to the Father. So we don't see the comfort of the exclusivity of Jesus when we don't have a good, reformed, Pauline doctrine of our depravity. Two things you will see that go together in churches that don't teach a full gospel. One is, they will not speak to the full depravity of mankind. And secondly, they will not speak of the exclusivity of the atoning work of Jesus Christ as the only way. Those two things will go together. We're not really all that bad, and Jesus is a good way, but come on, all roads lead to heaven, right? Those two things will always go together, and it's because of a denial of that doctrine of depravity and the necessity, the exclusive necessity of Jesus Christ. And we, you lose that, you lose that, and you lose all hope. It's gone. You lose all hope that you are right before God. You will find yourself lying to yourself and justifying your sins and, and justifying your ways, or you will fall down before Jesus as a repentant sinner and say, There's, there is no way I could be accepted before you. And Jesus would say, you got it right, come. It's all paid for. This is grace. It's all grace. Jesus is the only way, and that's where the comfort lies. It's a great comfort because it's our only hope. If you're on a sinking ship, and there's nothing but water all around, you have all kinds of choices as to what part of the ship you can jump off and drown. Choices abound. Help yourself. But if in the middle that you notice that there is one and only one life raft off to one side, you don't turn to your friend and bemoan the fact of the exclusivity of the one life raft. How arrogant that life raft is, saying that it's the only way. That's not what you do. You jump in the life raft. The exclusivity of the life raft is your comfort and your hope. There are hundreds of ways to sin and destroy ourselves. And we've tried them all. There is only one way to be saved. There is only one way to the Father. And praise God, there is any way at all. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Believe in God. Believe also in me, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. But all who come to Jesus Christ by faith come to the Father and they come home. Now, in these last verses, 7 through 11, I want you to remember, again, the prologue. How many times will I go back to this and bother you? The first 18 verses of John's gospel is a prologue. It, it's almost a table of contents of what he's going to be then breaking out and talking about the rest. And that last verse of, of, of verse 18 of chapter 1, John states, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The Word has declared him. The incarnate Word has declared him. We see Jesus, in other words. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, who I just told you four verses earlier, is the Word made flesh. He has declared him. Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then Jesus says in our passage here, he who has seen me has seen the Father. These verses, verses 7 through 11, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? 
And by the way, you have, you have here a disciple who, again, who has walked with Jesus all these years and doesn't know some of this, at least. He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. And it swirls in your head, doesn't it? Ah. Yes, it does. It does. These, these verses challenge us to understand some of the mystery of the triune God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and yet they are one in essence through two distinct persons. The third person will be brought in later uh, in, in the discussion. The Father is God and the Son is God, two distinct persons, ineffably, ineffably one and yet ineffably distinct. Augustine wrote, and listen, insofar as he is called father with respect to the son, he is not the son. Insofar as he is called the son with respect to the father, he is not the father. Insofar as he is called both father with respect to himself and son with respect to himself, he is the same God. Maybe that helps. Jesus is the way to the Father, the only way. So Jesus himself is making this distinction. He's a road. He's a journey. He's the way to get to the Father. And yet he also said that the Father dwells in him. And here's where I want to bring comfort. The comfort that is promised for heaven is, is not a comfort enough to take care of my troubled heart today. Great, so it's going to be wonderful in heaven, then, seven years from now, 70 years from now, I don't know. But what about now? Jesus says, the Father dwells in me. Jesus says, come to me. And Jesus says, I'm the way to the Father. So when you believe in God, believe also in Jesus, for he is the way to the Father, the way to heaven. Believe according to his teaching, believe according to his works, especially his resurrection from the dead. The first and foremost thing is to believe, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord... You could easily insert Jesus if you do the, the work here. Whoever calls on the name of Jesus shall be saved. But this all means that while we have a great hope one day to be in heaven, Christ in us means that the Father is in us, and both in the person of the Holy Spirit. To be discussed later, we'll be getting there. So if you are in Christ, then you are on the way, the road. If you're in Christ, you're on the way, you're on the road to Father, your home, that place. But, and, and don't miss this, but the Father is not only at some distant end of your journey. Jesus is the journey, 
and the Father is united to Jesus, and therefore, in some way, the end of the journey is also with you right now. The end of the journey is also in some way with you right now. Because Jesus is in you by means of the Spirit. The Father indwells Jesus in Daddy's home. And that's where I want to be. So when Jesus begins this passage here, he commands you, let not your heart be troubled. He commands disciples who are deeply troubled over his departure, over what seems to be impending death for Christ, and that's going to mean persecution for them, and it did. They're not looking, they're not looking down the road and seeing a very good-looking future for themselves. And they're troubled. And Jesus tells them, you may not be troubled. Wow. So if you're troubled and you remain troubled, you're disobeying a command. What are we to do? Well, you confess your troubled spirit. You can confess your troubled heart to the God who you believe in, who you need to strengthen your faith, to direct your faith better to the right object, the right definition, the right sense of who he really is for you right now. The promise of where you're going to be when all trouble will end and some sense of the fact that that trouble is here right now for you, for your spirit, for your soul right now in the midst of it. How do you obey the command? Will you do it just as Jesus did? We saw him in the garden. Just as so many disciples have done before you. How many disciples have had to set their eyes on Jesus? Well, listen to Romans, uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's Hebrews 11, that's the hall of faith, those who believed God. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, those would be the troubles, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. He will finish your faith. He will increase your faith. He will perfect your faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, walked through the troubles, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on Jesus, and you will see the way, and you will see the end, and you will see that at the end, he is with you, even now, even in the midst of the trouble. And you will be able to run the race. Father, for every troubled soul here this morning, grant faith. Grant this kind of faith. Belief in Jesus. Belief that he is the perfect way and truth and life. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. Belief that the Father is in him and he in the Father. And that by coming to him, coming to Jesus, we're brought home. Home with our Father God. Home even in the midst of the journey. Comfort hearts and grant those here who do not know you. Grant them faith even now 
and to the glory of your name, that strong name of Jesus, and amen.